Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by the Boss Builders. That would be us. Hey, for this year, we are really ramping up our training options. Now, post-COVID, we did a lot of virtual work. We had our Art of the Great Boss Masterclass. We had, I think, 15 or 20 different cohorts go through it, and we still have cohorts going through it today. It's a great program, one session a month for 13 months. But we also realize that audiences are ready for us to come back on the road and visit them at their house. And so we are implementing a couple of new programs. Well, they're not really new. Well, one of them actually is very new. The first one is our two-day driving results on-site management skills workshop. This involves learning how to manage people, learning about yourself, learning how to motivate, lots of exercises we do together, lots of opportunities to practice. Our second option, though, is a new hybrid option. And so what we wanted to do with this one is to establish an entire year with an organization. Three in-person, one-day on-site visits with virtual sessions in between. So in the in-person sessions, we can really work as groups. We can do some practice, some skill practice, and then we can touch base throughout the year with those individual virtual sessions. So that is our second option. We're obviously going to continue our Art of the Great Boss cohorts. But finally, you can also license and teach our curriculum. We've developed it to the point where really anybody could step in. There's a very robust train the trainer guide. I will also come on site and teach you how to teach the curriculum. So you could do it at your own time, your own pace, your own schedule. For information on all of these programs, just check us out online at thebossbuilders.com. You know, as a native English speaker, living in a country where English is the primary language, it's really hard for me to think about what life would be like if I didn't understand English. But of course, I have had the benefit of traveling overseas, and I know what it's like to go to places where English is not the first language, and that can be really challenging and uncomfortable. You know, we think about that, and we don't realize it could be an issue in our own work environments. Our guest today is Diana Sanchez-Vega. She is an expert in what's called language access. And through her company, she is coming up with resources to help take care of the challenges we have with language access. I didn't really understand this was a thing, and I met Diana at a conference I was speaking at here a few months ago. And when I did, I knew that we needed to have her on the show to give this important information to each of you. So she's a great interview. She has a totally interesting, phenomenal background. I think you'll really enjoy this one. So let's let her do the talking. You know what time it is. Let's make sure the personal items tucked underneath the seat in front of you. Make sure your seatbelt is buckled low and across your hips. Time for us to taxi to the runway. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Diana Sanchez-Vega, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mac. It's good to see you. Well, I'm glad you could be here with me today. So for the audience that doesn't know uh, who you are, I'm going to start by telling you where we met. So we met, I guess, a month or two ago at the M.T. Sherm Talent Conference. We were introduced by our friend Joy Johnson Carruthers, who's been on the show before. 
And uh, she says, you need to meet my friend, Diana. So we sat down and we talked and we agreed this would be a good episode. So we're going to be talking about something called language access. And it was something I was not aware of and you made me aware of it. And we want to make the rest of the audience aware of it. So Diana, to, to start us off, tell us about your journey and, you know, kind of your background. And then let's get into the questions about language access. Yes, thank you so much, Mac. Uh, and always grateful to Joy. She's she's a good friend. Yes, she is. Um, I was born and raised in Argentina, and I was born and raised bilingual and bicultural. And then I moved to the United States um, in December of 1999. And so I've always worked in kind of being the that bridge between two languages and two cultures. Eventually, I set up my own business, and um, I... I first moved to Atlanta, Georgia from Nashville, and then I uh, moved to, uh, I mean, Atlanta, Georgia from Argentina, sorry, and then moved to Nashville two years later. So I've been in Nashville since 2001 and um, being a, br a bridge between two cultures and uh, two languages is kind of part of who I am. So it, I kind of you know, it was very organic for me to go into my business doing that. That's great. So when you say, so bilingual, I'm assuming then English and Spanish, is that the bilingual? Yeah, yes. For my case, okay. yes. Okay, good. All right. So now you, you mentioned something called language access and I kind of, I remember looking at you like, I don't know what that is. And then you kind of explained it, but for those who have it, can you explain what that is? And then maybe uh, a language access plan? Yes. So language access is, um, is, is really providing equity in um, any interactions with non-English speakers. So it's providing services to ensure that non-English speakers receive the same level of service that English speakers do. Um, and a language access plan um, is a plan that organizations draft to ensure that when they are serving non-English speakers, they are providing equity in their services. So for example, if we think about a patient that is a non-English speaker that goes to a hospital um, and the doctors that are English speakers are nurses or the medical staff have to you know, do their job the same way as they would for an English speaker, language access is providing those additional supports so that the non-English speaker, and we call them limited English proficient speakers, so the LEP receives the same level of service. So by putting together a language access plan, we ensure um, equity in the delivery of service. And it's also um, a federal requirement for any organization that receives any kind of federal funds. Now, are those specific to any one language or could it be any? For example, before we moved to Tennessee, we moved here in 2014. Uh, I worked in, or well, we lived in a place, Montgomery County, Maryland, for nearly 14 years. There are 37 languages spoken. I worked for a period of time at Holy Cross Hospital in Silver Spring, oh, wow. and we had a team of sort of, I forget what they called them, but they kind of reminded me of what you just said. And you'd hear Paige, you know, can somebody who can speak Farsi you know, go to Ward 1B or whatever that was. And, and everybody that was bilingual could offer that up as an extra thing. But that's huge. I mean, so I'm thinking Spanish is probably your primary, but I mean, does this mean we look at every other possible language too? Yes, indeed, Mac, that's exactly it. So 
you would be surprised, but Nashville, so it's for every language, so any non-English language, um, and Nashville is actually a United Nations gateway city. It's a model gateway city. And so a United, in case, you know, you are the audience and not familiar with that term, a United Nations gateway city is a city that has applied uh, to the government of the United States through, I mean, to the United Nations through the government of the United States to become a city where refugees and those seeking asylum are resettled to. And the United States at any given time, and don't quote me on this, but for the information I have in general, has between 25 and 27 main gateway cities. So we think about cities like New York or cities like LA, right there. We think, and now you mentioned Maryland. Well, Nashville has done such a good job of being, being a gateway city that it has become a model gateway city where refugees are resettled to and other cities applying to become a gateway city come here to learn how to do it. And so in Nashville, we have, I really don't know the amount of languages, but just to tell you, uh, for example, Metro Nashville, Metro Nashville public schools have upwards of mm, 40 languages that are spoken amongst the populations that they that they serve that many in Nashville oh yes Nashville has and that's why you know it's this is funny because I I live now in Hermitage but when I uh -huh. moved to Nashville in 2001 I used to live in Hendersonville mm -hmm. and there was I had this sweet sweet lady as a neighbor right and so she came up to me and, she, and you know we started just developing a you know neighborly relationship and so when she learned what I used to do, she's like, you know, I really don't understand why people, for example, from Sudan, we have the Lost Boys of Sudan here, people from Sudan would come to Nashville. Like, what is the, like, is the weather the same as in Nashville, right? And so it is really understanding that the resettlement process, like if we think about the terrible things that are happening in Ukraine right now, and that, you know, unfortunately happened in Afghanistan, we've received huge uh, amount of contingents of refugees that are resettled. And quite frankly, when you only have five minutes to pack your stuff, you don't have time to learn English to move here. Right. Yeah. I think that's the part that and, and I might deviate a little bit because I hear, you know, like you're here in our country, you need to speak our language. And that's fine to say that. But if you've never traveled abroad, if you've never lived in a place where they don't speak a word of English, then you have no right to say that because it is hell to go to a place where you can't. I went to China. I don't understand the characters like, holy cow, man, I don't know. You just and then you find an occasional person that speaks a little English. It's scary. So when you see this, you need to get off that high horse. This is a brand new thing. And there is nothing sweeter than somebody speaking your language. I remember when I was like in Poland and China, when you hear someone speak English, you're like, wow, I got to go see them. I know. Like, wow, you're an American. No, I'm Canadian. Like, close enough. Doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> So I see, like, you know, especially if an organization wants to have a welcoming culture, what is more welcoming than being able to be understood in your own language? Yes. And, you know, Mark, this is what I say. And, you know, the, the people in my industry um, 
we, you know, when you are in the industry, it's something that like it's our everyday, right? But as you said, you know, for those folks who are not familiar with what this means, um, language access, meaning providing these supports for non-English speakers is really not only for the non-English speaker for the LEP. The, the, the service is also for the English speaker because the English speaker wants to make sure that they can provide, you know, that they can do their work well. And so, as you just said it, if you cannot communicate with someone, so besides it being a federal requirement and stuff, it's really about the the um, ability of of me if I'm a doctor, if I'm a school teacher, if I'm the uh, HR manager in a in a hotel, right, uh, in a convention center, right. We know that a lot of folks that are limited English proficient speakers work like hospitality. Like if you go, if you possibly being in, in conventions or something like oh, everybody yeah. banquet service, like half of them are Egyptian, you know, mm -hmm. the other half might be Kurdish. Um, and so it's really about those that are English speakers also to be able to do their job because it's very frustrating when you're trying to communicate with someone to do your job and you can't. Well, I work with managers who struggle and the people speak English. So, you know, <laughs> imagine throwing the language on top of what is oftentimes a real problem to begin with. Yeah. So, well, this is this is amazing. So so what you do then is it uh, is it translating? Is it interpreting? What exactly is language access? So language access is providing the supports needed so that when a service is delivered, it's delivered, uh, service is delivered to a limited English proficient speaker. It is delivered at the same level of quality and at the same level of access of opportunity to receive that service fully as if it was delivered to English speakers. And so translation and interpreting are connected, but they're different. So when we say translation, that's the written word. So it's basically, you know, a document that is translated, for example, an employee handbook or a, um, a um, let's say a collateral or some kind of marketing material uh, promoting services. An interpretation is the spoken word, right? So it's when someone is having a, uh, when someone is saying something in English and then uh, interpreting it into Spanish. And so this is how I like to compare it. I like to say that translation is like a movie, is like putting together a movie, right? Where you can you can edit and iterate and iterate and you can take as long as you want, where there's always deadlines, but you know, you can do it 120,000 times if you want to. Interpreting is like a, a play in the theater, it's live. You can kind of fix it there, but you really have to think on your feet, right? Because uh, as you, you know, when you go to the theater, if someone suddenly forgot their lines or says the wrong lines, they kind of pivot, right? So that's the difference. I see. Well, I guess, you know, when I watch fights and they interview, if the winner is from another country, sometimes they'll have an interpreter when they speak Chinese or Portuguese. We see a lot, of course, in mixed martial arts. Yeah. And I always think, wow, I can't even catch up what the guy said in the question. And now I got to interpret the answer. I guess it must take practice, right? Yes, it takes practice and training. And so, um, sorry, I always have like these comparisons because I'm an instructor and so I'm always trying to, but. I do, I love it. I learn best through comparison and analogy. So yes, play on, please. Yes, so um, when you are, uh, when you are bilingual, right? 
it's as if you would have a class D driver's license. You can drive a car, right? Maybe an SUV and stuff like that. But being an interpreter, right? It's a higher, a more developed skill. It's like being able to drive a tractor trailer. And so from going to driving a class, you know, from driving a car to a tractor trailer, you have to take some training. Actually, it's about 120 hours, which is the same type of our, same amount of hours that uh, my training takes to interpret so we can be bilingual and then be able to interpret it's it's another level of development of the skill how long would it take a person that is moderately comfortable in the other language to be able to do that is it just a matter of repetition how do you build those skills i know right it's, it's yeah. a little um it really varies on i cannot give you a specific amount of time uh, that it would take but once you are at a level of proficiency of bilingualism, then, as I said, about 120 hours of understanding the setting, because Mac, understanding the setting is critical, because it's not the same that I'm interpreting in court, for example, than if I'm interpreting for a doctor's appointment. Actually, and don't tell my legal interpreter colleagues that I said this, actually interpreting in court, I would say, is a little easier from this standpoint. In court, all you're doing is just, you know, uh, transferring messages from one language to another because the one that keeps order in the court is the judge. So the judge tells people when to speak, when not to speak, when leave court, right? What happens next? It's very protocolar. But in healthcare and education, which are my wheelhouses and, and who I train, it's totally different because not only are we interpreting, but the appointment is not so protocol. And there's a conversation. There's people really not feeling well and wanting to openly uh, share what's going on. And so everybody's working towards the healthcare and well-being of the patient, or towards the uh, you know success of a student. Whereas in court, you have opposing parties, so the words are very measured. But in this setting, we are not only having to interpret, we're also having to manage the flow of the conversation and tell people, okay, one person speak at a time, okay, pause so that I interpret. So mm -hmm. the different settings. And so it can take, you know, uh, it really depends sometimes how much people study. <laughs> right? So I guess with like doing medical, how do you interpret medical words? Because some of those are Latin based, I mean, which yeah. of course would factor in Spanish some, but yes. even still, I mean, medical words and terminology is hard for even native English speakers. Yes, they are. <laughs> and so we, uh, one of the things that I teach is roots, prefixes and suffixes and how to, because it's impossible to know every medical term, right? And we interpret across, across specialties. Um, and so we usually focus on what we call the most common the most common conditions and diseases, the most common uh, types of diagnostic testing, testing, the main, right? But we, but by learning how to, what we call intervene, so let's say a doctor says a term that as an interpreter we're not even familiar with, we have to have our, our session management skills really developed so that we can tell everybody to pause, ask real quickly, like, what does the term mean? And then with an explanation, then we interpret that. So we just, it's not just about studying the medical terminology, it's also about knowing how to manage the flow of communication. Okay, well, that would be very complicated. And then the emotion that goes on with it and oh, yes. 
I just keep thinking too, trying to explain medical stuff to someone that doesn't understand even basic, like I'm, you know, if I try to explain something to my mom about medical wise, I got to say it three different ways. But if she didn't speak English, it'd be even more complicated. Yes. And so there's, you know, providers that, you know, I, I, I believe, I mean, if the pandemic is something is, is show us the commitment of, you know, healthcare workers, right. Um, they do the best they can. So they're also coming into an appointment, right. With a patient with all their restrictions, right. With like insurance requires them to spend so long and cost and time. And so really focusing on more simple language is always the best. Yeah. I mean, what, I don't know, this is just me thinking out loud. I mean, for some of that complicated stuff, would it be better just to have like a, a, a sheet of paper just written out with the procedures written in Spanish or Farsi or whatever it would be to, well, to, to accomplish the big stuff that, that the interpreting would kind of lose or do you, well, do you the, kind of pair those up? I'm just trying to figure it because oh, I'm no. still trying to grasp how, how I, I would do this. It would be impossible. <laughs> well, honestly, Mac, it's just, it's, it's just like any other highly developed skill. It's a matter of iterating and trying and trying it. Um, if we're talking about healthcare, right? Let's say a patient goes to see the doctor, right? And they uh, and the doctor comes into the room and, and starts talking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, we have already trained on how to learn how to work with someone within 40 seconds, because I most of the time I don't know the doctor, right? I just arrive. Um, and so the key there is to really focus on what the message is being said. And that's part of the training, the training. And that's why bilingual is not the same as interpreter. What we do is we really train on being an effective communicator and picking up that message. And with everything that is happening now with AI, for example, uh-huh. when we read about these, like, you know, chat GPT and learn how to do prompts and stuff, that's mm-hmm. the skill we train on how this message that we're listening, we have to really turn it, transfer it into the other language in a very succinct way. So we've been training for chat GPT prompts for a long time. <laughs> That's great. I was, I'm kind of curious about that because it seems like that eventually could really be an assist as well. It could be an assist and the, the thing would be that you, so no, I guess so far, hey, I'm mm-hmm. not a tech person, but it's really difficult to automate culture Mm -hmm. because when we are, we don't certainly don't speak like I don't speak for all the Spanish speakers or everybody who's from Argentina or any, you know, I never generalize generalize. And that's what training because everybody's experiences are unique, but we can get a sense of what someone is trying to communicate, maybe a patient or a provider to a patient or a teacher to a parent, um, just by understanding backgrounds, right? And that is something that an automated uh, machine cannot do. It's very difficult to for, for a machine to figure out emotions because emotions are really, right? That's what differentiates us a little bit from machines. That right? is the, the single biggest <laughs> yeah, right. difference right there. Machines don't feel right. yeah, where we do. Yeah, right. And so, as you said before, you have to. So one thing is if a patient is saying, 
I have pain on my side. And the other thing is if a patient is saying, I have pain on my side, right? It's very different. And so we have to, that prompts the provider. It's like, okay, you know, when they ask you like, from one to 10, what's your level of pain? Right. That is something that the provider can pick up through conversation, through that emotion. Okay. Well, it seems like that's about how you'd almost have to pattern it. It just yeah. seems like it'd be very complicated. Yeah. So you are, do you primarily work with English, Spanish, or have you branched into other languages as well? Yeah. So I, uh, so Spanish is my first language. And I have language coaches that assist me during trainings for other languages. I have right now, I have trained language coaches for Arabic, French, Swahili, Dari, Chinese, uh, for Chinese, Mandarin and Cantonese. Um, I'm Kurdish. Uh, so yeah, so I bring in folks that are, you know, themselves trained and are either trained as interpreters or are interpreters themselves actively working. And I kind of bring them in to help out with those other languages. Okay. So basically if someone was to say, we got somebody that speaks Klingon, you'd be able to figure it out then. Yes. Okay. I have through the networks of different, uh, uh, professional associations, connections I have to find folks. Yes. So are, are you finding that companies are beginning to do this even for, even that are not external service providers like healthcare, we've used them multiple times, yeah. but a company like, you know, for example, a manufacturer who doesn't really have customer facing people. Do you find that that is done internally as well? Yes, because they have workers usually that, uh, need that. Um, there, uh, for example, uh, there was, I, I did a speaking engagement in Alabama, like, I guess a month and a half ago or two months ago. Right. And they have a huge project with China, as you said, and so they're going to bring over uh, a contingent of 18 Chinese individuals uh, are going to be here training for several months. And so it might be that folks come from abroad and need to be trained here or folks that are here. Uh, for example, if you think about Tyson Foods, if you think about uh, that's the first one that, that comes to mind, right? Their workforce, a lot of their work, Amazon, a lot of folks at Amazon um, are very uh, limited in, not a very, but have a large, uh, group of their staff that is limited English proficient. And we also have to think about workplace safety in construction. Yes. That is huge. And that has become an issue. And again, as I said, Matt, it's not just about of wanting to do the right thing. It's also a requirement. It's, it's, it's like the law. It's a federal requirement. Okay. Well, I guess, you know, it's funny, we have a local client in Laverne. And so uh, when I check in and out there, I would say the majority of the workers do not speak English. And it's not just Spanish, it's all different kinds of languages spoken. And that's, you know, here in middle Tennessee, which again, I think most people would say Tennessee, like foreigners don't go to Tennessee. Don't they just go to California and New York, Florida? No, that this, well, let's not forget, this is actually a nation of immigrants, right? Yeah. So it's kind of all in all of our DNAs, but it seems to me now that we are becoming a melting pot. And so at what point does an organization that doesn't have the mandate, at what point should they be thinking about, maybe we need to start looking at language access? 
I would say yesterday. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> yesterday for, for a couple of reasons. Um, over the, I would say maybe since the early 90s, since the early 90s onwards, the amount of folks that have moved to the U.S. has been, it has like, it's, it's like multiplied five times. Mm-hmm. And and a lot there's a lot of confusion, Matt, because sometimes, and again, I'm not talking for everybody, we think about limited English proficient speakers or immigrants who say, oh, undocumented, documented. But there's like folks that have come from overseas and they're all legal immigrants. They're all yeah, yeah. because they come here legally. Folks uh-huh. that come to work here and then stay here, right? right? And so this has been kind of growing and building for about close to 30 years. And so now what we have is, as we were talking, folks that are in manufacturing, in construction, in healthcare, in schools, in different settings that are working, providing these services. And so if we don't assure that they're able to do their job within the policies and procedures because they're not understanding it, then we have a problem. You got a huge problem because you can't just say, I'm getting rid of you because I can't speak your language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, Diana, you have made the case why we need to do this, and you've given us a lot of information and shared your expertise. But what I want to know now is how you and Sanchez Vega Communications can help us. What services can you provide if right now I've heard this and said, wow, she said we should start yesterday. I got to start now, Uh, but I don't even know what I don't know. So tell us how you and your company can specifically help us. Absolutely. So the very first thing would be to have a consultation. And when I say consultation, I'm not talking about 30 hours of consults. I'm just talking about a handful, two or three hours to see what it is that is already set up. Mac, I'm all about the bottom line. Um, And so it's seen like, do you have anything? Have you tried anything or not? So it's really a consultation to kind of audit internally. And then based on that, look at what would be the more sustainable and budget-friendly way of developing a language uh, access plan or adjusting the one that is available there. And the other thing would be, so that would be from the language access consultant. The other thing would be, do you have bilingual staff that would be interested in also being trained to interpret as needed? A lot of organizations, Mac, have this amazing workforce that is already bilingual. And some folks that are bilingual don't want to interpret, and that's fine. But others uh, see being trained as interpreters as a way to kind of move up and be promoted maybe in their job. But it's really important that if they're going to be trained and we provide that training for bilingual staff in interpretation skills, that that is in the job description and also a differential is paid. So it's like how in your HR department, how can you make it a win-win for both part- parties? And we also offer voiceover and audio prompts and, of course, translation of documents in tons of languages. So really having that consultation to see, because a lot of organizations have done some stuff. And it's not like, oh, let's reinvent the wheel. Uh-uh, I'm not about that at all. That is good to know. Well, the last question I have then, now that I know that you can help us and how, Biggest one, how can we find you? If we want to get started today, because yesterday's past, even though we should have started, Diana, how do we find you? So um, I'm on LinkedIn, Diana Sanchez Vega. 
I also have my website, sanchez-vega.net. You can also reach me at diana at sanchezvega.net or call or text at 615-585-9884. Excellent. Well, Diana, thank you for shining a light on something that I really didn't even realize was a huge issue. And thank you for letting our audience know why it's so important. I think when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think inclusion would start with, you can speak my language. I feel like I'm part of the team now. I don't feel like I'm that extra person. So thank you. I feel like you want me here. Yes, Max, thank you. You nailed it on the head. That's exactly it. Inclu this is a big, inclusion is the key here. So thank you for having me. It has been great talking to you. And I am very grateful for the work you do through Boss Builders. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of the HR Oxygen podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoy making them. I've learned so much from the guests we've had on the show over the past few years, and I hope that you will continue to listen to us regularly. If you are a subscriber on any podcast app or channel, would you do us a favor and take a moment and leave us a review? We would really, really appreciate it. Also, if you have the time, check out all the offerings we have on our website, which is thebossbuilders.com. We have every other month a Sherm Credit webinar that we present, as well as a ton of other events, not to mention our Art of the Great Boss and Art of Being a Great Teammate programs. More information on that site today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh, by the way, may want to unbuckle that seatbelt. I think we just arrived at the gate. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well. <laughs>